0: Welcome to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast, where we talk with some of the greatest names from the stadium and stage about the music and sports that shaped their lives. I'm John Adams. In my years of working in the music and sports arenas, I've experienced firsthand the surprising connections between these two industries. Together through this podcast, we will explore this crossover relationship. All of our podcasts have an accompanying Spotify playlist that showcases the music we discuss with each of our guests. Search for The Score on Spotify. Today's guest was the number one pick in the 1993 NFL Draft and taken by the New England Patriots. He was one of the NFL's best quarterbacks of the 1990s. The four-time Pro Bowler retired in April 2007 and at the time of his retirement, he was fifth in NFL history in pass attempts and completions, seventh in passing yards and 13th in touchdown passes. In 2011, he was inducted into the New England Patriots Hall of Fame. We will speak with quarterback Drew Bledsoe right after this.
1: When we move, we're better. It's when we stand still that we're in trouble. We believe that having equal opportunity to be active and to play is the way we achieve our full potential. You deserve the chance to use sport to unlock everything you want to be and all you want to do. We start today
0: to change tomorrow so that every girl and woman can realize her power. It's her time. It's our time. All girls, all women, all sports. Visit womensportsfoundation.org to learn more, donate, or shop for a good cause. All right, and welcome back to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. I'd like to welcome to the show NFL veteran and former QB for the Patriots, Cowboys, and Bills, Drew Bledsoe. Hey John, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you, Drew? I'm great. Yeah. I hear you are in Montana. Yeah, hey, uh, we're very socially distant from uh, well, pretty much <laughs> most
1: of the world up here. There's a, uh, it's uh, I think at uh, the lower 48. I think Montana is the least densely pop- populated state, so we got lots of room. As you would probably imagine, there were pretty significant pieces of Montana that just never you would never even know anything happened. You know, and just mm-hmm. like they're just living living their lives, and they're you know, a lot of room up here, and uh, almost, and, and I don't think they they had almost nobody sick in the entire state. So there were big chunks of Montana that just never even shut down.
0: That's the exact opposite of California. Everything shut yeah. down. We <laughs> right. we're still trying to to eke our yeah. way back to normalcy, and it's yeah. uh, it's it just yeah. sucks, man.
1: You know, it's kind of interesting. My son just graduated from Cal Poly in flow uh, and, uh, you know, had sort of it actually ended up being a cool graduation ceremony because, you know, the, the boys just got up and talked about each other. There were eight of them that were all in the room together. They got up and talked about each other instead of listening to some boring valedictorian and hearing their name read. They, they actually got to tell some good stories. It was pretty fun.
0: That's nice. So uh, so sitting on the porch, relaxing, and we get to talk a little music and a little sports. This is This is great, man.
1: It's not a bad way to, uh, I guess, we'll, just, we'll call this work. Uh, it's not a bad way to work. I <laughs> sit out here with a, a, with a cup of coffee with the sunshine. And hopefully the dogs don't start barking while we're here. If we do, then we'll just have to do another take.
0: But if they do, it makes it more authentic. It's like having the kids okay. walk through <laughs> the uh, the Zoom meetings and stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Some of those have been really funny, haven't they, man? Just, uh, I think, and then there's some funny comments like, uh, you know, Spouses talking about their spouses who they never had heard at work. <laughs> um, you know, like the lady, one <laughs> she said something about it. I said, wow, I'd never heard him on a work call before. I had no idea my husband was the, uh, let's put a pin in that guy. <laughs>
0: <But> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you get to see a whole other side to spouses once they're putting on the business hat and walking around yeah. with business face and focus on.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Which um, you know, it's not that unusual for me because I don't, I don't generally go to an office, so that my family sees me on the phone quite a bit. So uh, you know, and hopefully I don't change that much, but uh, they can certainly, they can certainly tell when I'm on a business call rather than uh, uh, than a phone call.
0: Well, I wanted to to take a step back and start with your time at Washington State, and this is. Of course, the pre-playlist era, and it's more the era of the Discman and Walkman. So, yeah. what were you listening to when you were uh, at Washington State?
1: Well, the Washington State, you know, it was it was interesting because during my, I don't know if we're the same age or not, John, but it, but but my time in college,
0: yeah, we're close, was,
1: was the uh, my time in college was the end of the hair band and into the Seattle grunge scene. Yeah, um, and uh, so you know there was a lot of you know early on it was you know I remember uh, um, Guns N' Roses uh, launched their, their big double album the Use Your Illusion album yeah and uh, and I was still listening to kind of some Motley Crue and that kind of stuff um, and then uh, you know Nirvana uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit hit MTV back when MTV used to play uh, music videos <laughs> and all of a sudden hairbands hair bands were over and yeah. it was grunge music. It was just, it, it was, it was such a, uh, you know, a, a major shift in, uh, in that side of the music world that, uh, it was just amazing to be a part of it. So I was, so those are the, you know, Nirvana Pearl Jam Soundgarden. Um, that was kind of my second year in college and all that stuff, uh, uh, hit. And, um, um, uh, geez, I remember uh, temple of a dog where some of them yeah. got together. And, um, so there was some of that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then on the other side of it, I always, I was always, you know, kind of a, a, a rap fan a little bit. Some of it was just because I was played in the locker room a lot. But uh, you know, I grew up with uh, some Beastie Boys and Run DMC, and uh, and then uh, when I got to college, was able to, uh, you know, ask some of my teammates like, right, oh, you know, me some good rap music? So then it turned into Tribe Called Quest. Um, I actually, listened to quite a bit of Public Enemy, if you can believe that, which was nice. Uh, I just, you know, I always appreciated artists that had something to say, and uh, Public Enemy certainly had something to say.
0: Oh, without a doubt. It it is interesting because to come out of of hair bands and the makeup and the big hair and the spandex to the grunge and the flannel and and just raw musicianship is is one thing. But then to to also go to to some of the I wanna say gangster rap, but really rap with a message like public enemy. NWA was 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 huge then too. That's what I was Absolutely. listening to. Yeah. yeah. So Easy yeah. E Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh yeah, Easy E for sure. Yeah. And uh matter of fact, um uh, um uh, Easy E was always in uh once I once I um went to the NFL and I had a suburban that had a, a big sound system in it, um uh, Easy, was always available, and uh, if we were getting ready to go out for a big night, that 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 uh, <laughs> you know, the, we'd play "Boys in the Hood." Um, it is pretty interesting, you know, because it's this you know the time that we're living in right now. We're we're uh, you know uh, civil rights and and is uh, uh, the topic of the day. Yeah. Um, um, those songs hold up, it's, it's, you know. I mean, that's, you know. Coming up on uh, you know close to 30 years ago, and uh, those songs are still pertinent today. You know, it's uh, they uh, they're they're still uh, still a message that still resonates, and I, I'm I'm not sure that that's a good comment on on society that those songs still resonate or on the uh, but uh, um, you know you go you know the messages that they were uh, that they were on then you know you could you could if you released those songs today they would be smash hits again.
0: I totally agree, and Chuck D is is still producing the same that same kind of rage-filled music but still with 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 a poignant uh, side to it with uh, his band the Prophets of Rage.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty it's, it's pretty amazing and and, and you know and on the music front one thing though that that, that that is always that, I, that I've always appreciated um, our artists okay you know, have a message, you know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. But also with that, please make good music. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, one, it's, one thing, it's one thing to have a great message, but also give me a hook, make it something I also want to listen to. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and then there are other songs that are just appealing songs that don't really have mm-hmm. any message, but, uh, but when, when, uh, I, I, I do appreciate it when artists who have a message also make good music around their message. Cause that makes it a lot more, uh, enjoyable.
0: Agreed. When you were um, when you were in the locker room, you mentioned that that some of the guys had an influence on your music taste and were and let you or helped you to expand your music horizons. Um, did you help any of your friends also get uh, get into the Seattle sound and into grunge and into the music that you were listening to?
1: You know, it was interesting um, because. Um, And I don't, I I don't, I'm I'm sure that there are people that can, and probably yourself um, included, people that can, uh, that can speak more eloquently to why that first Nirvana hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit, why that crossed, you know, all kinds of musical barriers where, you know, my, you know, some teammates that, you know, if I told them we were going to listen to Motley Crue, it would just you know look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> but for whatever reason, those songs—maybe it's just because they 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 hit so hard. I, those songs would, um, you know, would would cross over. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, but the other thing that was kind of funny when I when I, uh, I I did when I was growing up, we had two kinds of music in the house. We had country and western. <laughs> um, and uh, the, I, I was sort of force-fed that when I was young, but but uh, uh, and then thought I, I thought I hated it because that's all we could ever listen to. And then it turns out when I went to college, I started to miss it. Uh, but I did turn a couple of uh, handful of teammates on. They thought they thought country music was you know stupid, and uh, you know, and some songs obviously are, but, but there's a whole <laughs> bunch of good stuff. And I did turn some guys on to some country music as well.
0: That's awesome. I, I I love country country music because it has a story to it, and and for some people hate it for that. But also, country music in the nineties changed from that that twangy country um, music to the the Garth Brooks era, and that country music is as close to rock in that crossover sound that you can get. And even today, you have stars like. Uh, Taylor Swift, who are straight up pop crossover artists and aren't even I what I would consider country anymore.
1: Right? Yeah, it's uh, it is sort of interesting. I, I I do find it kind of cringeworthy if I turn on a country radio station. A lot of the times, to <laughs> like wait, that's not actually really country music. You know that, right? Um, but uh, I grew up. Uh, I grew up on the the, the you know Merle Haggard, um, Waylon Jennings, uh, Willie Nelson. Um, the roots you know, of country music. Oh yeah, yeah. We grew up on that stuff. Merle Haggard was like a family member. He was in our house all the time. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, kind of the uh, that stuff, and then and then obviously, you know, Garth Brooks um, became a, a big deal. But um, mm-hmm. you know, still, still love, still love George Strait. Still love, you know, all the. I kind of, I still kind of sure. prefer the old guys. Um, but there is a, there was a new guy that, that, that I just found the other day that's that, that the first guy that I, I, think, I think I've ever heard that really, truly sounds like Merle Haggard. Uh, uh, Zephaniah O'Hara, I, I think is, is how you say his name. I may be pronouncing it wrong, huh. uh, but it was pretty interesting. A buddy turned me on to him and was like, wow, that sounds like a young Merle Haggard. And uh, uh, so finding some new, some new old country.
0: I've noticed that when I am listening to 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 music and I'm away from the stuff that either I'm working on or the stuff that I that I grew up with, I tend to lean toward music that that is way before my era, like um, like the 40s and 50s, roots of country music, roots of rock and roll. And that older music has it still is is poignant. It still has a place today, and it's something that that I don't think a whole lot of people end up gravitating toward.
1: You know, it's a good point too, because the, and then the other the other piece about that that the, 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 um, when you go back a little ways, um, it's just raw, pure music played by musicians. You know, like the 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 ability to produce uh, music back then. Uh, was almost non-existent. You, you just played, and it was laid down on vinyl, and uh, that's what <laughs> you get. You know, yeah, there was no uh, certainly no uh, auto tune. There was no, <laughs> uh, you, you weren't didn't have a big, you know, a, you know, significant mixing board. So you get like just pure, almost you know, like, probably more live sounding music when you go back that far.
0: Yeah, it's authentic. It sounds like it should that's sound. The right word. Yeah, yeah. That's the right word. And again today, I'm speaking with New England Patriots Hall of Famer Drew Bledsoe. Now, I have I, I do need to get a, into a little bit of football talk, so I hope you don't mind. Because no, not at all. Yeah. Not see, about I, I graduated high school in '93, so when that was the year you were drafted, so it's uh it, it's a big time for me as a football fan as well. And I know you were drafted with the number one pick. And if we could take a peek behind the curtain, did you know for absolute certainty that you were going to be the number one pick?
1: No, so I, you know, I, I, we thought I was going to be the number one pick, but Parcells would never say that. You know, he he would uh, he was always playing his cards tight. Whether he's going to take me, whether he's going to take Rick Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, with that first pick, we went back to New York City. It's actually pretty funny. Uh, it was the first time our family was ever on an airplane together. Uh, huh. Flew back to New York City, um, walking around, you know, in the middle of the night in New York City, not knowing that we were maybe about to be mugged because it wasn't a particularly safe <laughs> city back then. Uh, and uh, uh, I told people it was like the Waltons go to New York, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but then when they, when they when I walked up, when they were sitting backstage, and and uh, they you know came out and. Boo came out and said, you know, it's the first pick of the 93 draft And so doing the Patriots like Drew Bledsoe from Washington State. So I jumped up and I went to go, um, um, you know, I was going to go out on stage. Well, I look at my dad and he's trying to get the video camera off his hand and my mom was sort of confused and can't figure out what's going on. And uh, so I turned around, I ended up hugging my agent because neither of my parents were available to give me a hug. <laughs> uh, and then uh, walked out on the, uh, just walked out on the stage and, and uh, yeah, then I was a Patriot.
0: Oh, that's great! And before you came to the Patriots, they were—they were—they were. Let's face it, they were a dismal franchise. They went to the Super Bowl in '85, but other than that, they had like five playoff appearances since 1960. And most people say that the Patriots dynasty started with like the Super Bowl win in 2001. But the team really needed to instill a winning mentality first, and that change started after you came to the team. Do you ever get the credit that you deserve for that culture shift?
1: The real fans back in New England that were around during that era—they have a lot of respect for those teams of the early '90s. Yeah, um, you know, because it really was—you um, know—whether you're talking, you know, in a business or a team, or or you know, the wider, um, you know, the wider world. Changing culture is really hard, and mm-hmm. and uh, it had been a a, a team, buff. They had the number one pick, not by accident. <laughs> they were pretty crappy. <laughs> uh, um, but those teams that I was a part of, they were really, they were really cool teams to be around because we were really young. I mean, really young. We were, you know, there were only a couple of guys on the team that were over thirty, hmm. um, and uh, so we all kind of hung together. We also the other thing that was funny when we got to the Patriots, we had the worst facilities in the league uh, by a mile. Um, people laugh but I it, it's true when we when we would practice um we would get dressed at the stadium in all of our gear and then we would get our own cars and drive five miles to the Rentham State School which was an abandoned mental hospital <laughs> and that's where we had practice you wow and so we had, you know it was just it was and so we sort of had a you know us against the world mentality uh when we were there and it was uh it made it just really cool to be a part of and ultimately ended up having some success, and, and uh, Patriots went on to be obviously the best sports franchise. It's certainly in America, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but you know we all we all take a lot of pride in the fact that we kind of got it rolling.
0: Yeah, and there is one game that I wanted to to ask you about, and this is I believe it was your rookie season. You were playing the Vikings and down twenty to three at halftime, and you led a comeback in the second half to win twenty six to twenty. But in the process, you set a single game record. For pass attempts at seventy and pass completions at forty-five, what the heck was that game like?
1: Yeah, you know what, it was super fun. That's what it was. <laughs> um, I mean, I, well, I didn't start out very fun because we were down. We were down bad early, and, and uh, we've been struggling. But then, uh, yeah, kind of right at the end of the uh, right at the end of the first half, uh, just went into our two-minute offense, drove down, and got a field goal out of it, um, and then. Uh, Uh, My backup quarterback Scott Zolak, uh, he likes to take credit for you know saying he was the one that suggested it, but he (laughs) claims that he went to uh, Parcells and just said, "Hey, why don't you just why don't you just turn him loose, let him go?" And uh, so we came out second half, and I called my own plays. Uh, We went super rapid fire and started slinging it all over the yard. And then our 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 defense uh, made it made a couple of big stops for us and and, uh, won the game in overtime. It was uh, it was a pretty special one, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so it was really really cool
0: how did your arm not fall off after that game
1: <laughs> i always like to throw a lot you know throwing <laughs> football is different than it's different than throwing a baseball it's actually it's actually you know because i think if you throw a football really hard i i, I still have never been clocked but I, but I think it's you know it's only like probably 60 or maybe maybe really hard it would be like a little bit over 60 miles an hour so it's it really doesn't create much wear and tear on your arm. Mm-hmm. I always like to throw a lot of it. If I was on the sidelines, I was always playing catch, you know, just stand loose. So 70 really wasn't that many.
0: Well, you always had a beautiful long ball too. And I think the only other long ball that that came close was Randall Cunningham.
1: Randall threw a really beautiful spiral. Um, yeah. I think he, he, thought he, probably, he probably threw a little tighter spiral than I did. Um I'll tell you the guy that we all tipped our cap to, though, when it came to uh, just throwing a really pretty football was uh, Warren Moon. Uh, you know, Warren, Warren was the guy. Like it was like you know, if you watch the NFL film deal and you see the ball flying through the air and it's just this perfect spiral, and uh, it was usually Warren Moon that threw that ball. It had zero wobble on it. Uh, <laughs> He took it really seriously. He would even he would even really, he had a really particular way that he would uh, trim his fingernail on his index finger of his throwing hand so that that fingernail was the last thing that to touched huh. the ball and put the last
0: little piece of spin on it. Wow, tipping your hat to a husky too. That's that, that's pretty yeah, amazing, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. That was before my era, so I, I, <laughs> I can so I can I can I can be nice. Sometimes cats and dogs can play nice.
0: Also, at that time when you were playing, uh, when you started your career, that was really when fantasy football started to gain in popularity. When did you become aware of the fantasy football underground?
1: You know, um, I didn't really become aware of it until probably midway through my my career. Um, you know, early on, I you know I thought it was kind of Silly. You know, it's like, oh, it's like, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons for, uh, you know, for, for Jocks fans. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then after a little while, it, it really, you know, really started to catch on. And then it got funny, as you, you probably would imagine, where you'd, you'd bump into somebody and they'd either be happy with you or pissed at you based on how <laughs> many uh, points you scored for them the, the last week, which always seemed pretty ridiculous as a player. Like, really, that's, that's what you think I should be concerned about is, uh, <laughs> you know you didn't get enough points how about the fact that we won the game you yeah know? but uh, uh but now yeah no, and the, the other thing that's sort of funny about fantasy football is it turns out there's no correlation between playing nfl football and being good at fantasy football i'm awful <laughs> I'm
0: absolutely awful at fantasy football oh so you do play then
1: i do now yeah once i retired yeah, nice just my brother my brother and a bunch of guys and uh, and we jumped in and I haven't finished last, but that's the only thing that matters. Is you don't want to finish last because then you have to pay for the party, the draft party, the next year, and that's, that's right. You know, you get you get fifteen guys for dinner and drinks and all <laughs> that stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the uh, the so I haven't finished last yet. But I certainly haven't ever sniffed the championship.
0: Well, I have finished last, and it is humiliating. So yeah, stay oh, away from absolutely. it if you can. Um, yeah, yeah. In 2011, you were inducted into the New England Patriots Hall of Fame. How did you get the news that you were going to be inducted? <laughs>
1: you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, Mr. Kraft, who's the you know the owner of the Patriots, and he was the owner uh, for what eight of my nine years. There. First year, first year we were still owned by uh, Jim Orthwine as part of the Anheuser Busch family. He was going to take up to uh, are mm-hmm. trying to take the Patriots to St. Louis before the Rams went there. <laughs> um, which my kids, my kids actually laugh at me because I tell them I played against the L.A. Rams the first time they were the L.A. Rams, not the second time. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, uh, Mr. Kraft is a, He's a, he's a, been a really good friend, mentor, um, you know, for for a long time, and we've we've developed an even stronger relationship since I retired. Uh, but he's the one person if I uh, see my phone start to ring and uh, it's a, a blocked number. I will always answer a blocked number because there's a chance it might be Mr. Crash. And <laughs> sure enough, I was, I was actually I was in my driveway in, uh, in Bend, Oregon, and uh, my phone rang, and it was a blocked number. And I was like, well, I guess I better check it. And sure enough, he's like, hey. You know, he calls me Drew Meister. He goes, hey, Drew Meister, it's RKK. <laughs> and uh, i hey, boss, how are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm calling with really good news. Our fans voted, and, and um, you're overwhelmingly inducted into the Patriots Hall of Fame. So it was a really, really call to, uh, cool call to get from him, um, and uh, um, you know, that was a, that was a, that was a cool thing, honestly. From uh, and it was it was neat for for me, obviously, and a great honor. Um, but it was it was it was probably more important for my family. Mm-hmm you know you, when you go through something personally and uh, you know you can generally kind of handle it you can, you can get you know pissed off about a situation or whatever but then you mm-hmm. get to go deal, deal with it for your family it, it's much harder to find that closure when they don't feel like you were they feel like you know they felt like i should have deserved they deserved a chance to get back on the film i was there and all that sure. there was there really wasn't much closure for them on my time in new england and to to go back there and then to uh you know, they did the, the ceremony at halftime of the game, and uh, it was just a really touching ovation that the uh, fans there in New England uh, gave me. And it was it was also cool for my kids. I retired uh, after the '06 season, so Stu would have been nine, John would have been like seven and a half, Henry was <laughs> six, um, and Healy was was you know like two or three. So they sort of knew that it was different that I played football, but but not really you know just sort of like when dad leaves and they watch him on TV or we go to the stadium and play video games in the in the in the suite uh, <laughs> so to go back there when they were go back there when they were older um, and uh, you know be around that was uh, it was really cool for them too
0: well it's validation for, uh, for a for a, a great career how awesome is that that's everything that you could yeah. ever want right there
1: yeah and it's uh, it's cool to go back there now it's sort of a sort of a different kind of, of uh, fame. You know, when I was playing, you know, it was, uh, you know, autographs and, you know, people come running up and all that stuff. Now when I go back to New England, it's sort of like I'm an old buddy that came back home. So I'll be walking down the street and, you know, it'd be like a couple of, you know, firemen or a couple of cops or, you know, whatever, they're on the other side of the street. And, and uh, those kind of look over and wave and like, hey, what's up, dude? Good to see you. They're like, hey, good to see you too, man. It's like an old friend that came home and it's uh, it makes it really fun to go
0: back there. After you retired, you moved back to Walla Walla, and you started your Double Back Winery. And was that always the plan to start a winery in retirement?
1: No, not always the plan. It that became the plan uh, kind of late in my career. Actually, I think the first time I really started talking about it was uh, um, I think it was actually my uh, last year in New England where we started kind of playing around with that idea. Um. Yeah, but my wife and I really like wine and, and uh, started to learn more about it. And the more we learned about wine, the more interesting it became. And then the, uh, the, the pivotal po- point for me was, um, you know, I'd have buddies over uh, to, to the house when we were in New England. And I would tell her, we come over, hey, bring a bottle of red wine. They'd bring a bottle of red wine. We would go. I would go grab something from Walla Walla and we would put them all in paper bags. And do blind tastings with these red wines and figure out which ones, you know, we like the best. And the Walla Walla wines would win every single time. And so I'm like, wait a second, you know, my hometown is growing some of the best wine grapes in the world. You know, maybe I can go back there and start a business, not just a wine business, but a business in my hometown and make wines that are actually relevant on a world stage uh, in my little, you know, 30,000 person, you know, hometown. Um, so all of those things kind of came together. It was very serendipitous for me, and, and uh, uh, putting all of that together um, has really allowed us to have some success.
0: These little micro winery regions of uh, of, of the U.S. and of the world, um, Walla Walla being one of them. Um, in California, we have Paso Robles, which is has all these little micro wineries as well. It's not all Napa, and when people think of of wines in California or in the US they think Napa and Napa tends to be a bit more for lack of a better term pretentious than the than, than other wines they, they they're a little bit more snooty where you can go into a a, a tasting room in Walla Walla, Paso Robles, uh, down in Temecula and be introduced to different wines and try different wines and and ask questions and not have have your, have your somebody's nose turned up at you for asking a stupid question about a wine. You get to learn about the process in these places.
1: I totally agree with you. And uh, you know, I think Paso and Walla Walla have a lot of similarities. And, and one of the mm-hmm. things that, that, that plays right into what you're saying is, is that in Walla Walla and I think in Paso, almost all of the wineries are first generation. They're all still owned and run by the people that started them. And, uh, um, and they, so you get that passion of the, the, the inception of a business. And and the other thing that that you find too, in both places is that um, because it's not as ridiculously expensive as Napa has become over the years, Mm -hmm. you could actually be a farmer or a, you know, a, you know, in Walla Walla, there are teachers that all pulled their money and started a winery. You know, you don't have to be—you don't have to be a dot-com billionaire to uh, to start a winery in those regions. And so you get—you mm-hmm. uh you know—we were talking earlier about authentic music, and I think in in both uh, in Bolton Paso, I haven't been out to Temecula, but both in Paso and in Walla Walla, you get really oh. authentic wines. um You know, where that are rooted in the soil and they're rooted in the place that they're from. um and that's one thing that we've, we've really strived for you know, throughout the course of our business is to be authentic in what we do and how we represent uh, the different vineyards and, the, and represent our area. And, and, uh, um, it, it took a little while, you know, people, uh, mm-hmm. people look at, uh, you know, you know, football players starts winery like, Oh great. We got another, you know, dumb jock that's going to slap his name <laughs> on a crappy bottle of wine and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, have some overpriced slop and, uh, uh, it took a little while to convince people that we were really serious about, uh, about making great wine, not just, uh, uh, not just, and it's, you know, it's never been just a hobby. You know, we got the kids out, they got their hands dirty, uh, planted vines back in 2007 with, you know, we, we were, we were kind of just in the way, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we, uh, um, uh, you know, we got out and did, we did get our, our, our hands in the soil back then. And, and, uh, uh, started from scratch. And so it's been a lot of fun. And now I, it's sort of cool. I've, I've sort of been rebranded now. I think there's a certain segment of the population that knows me more for wine than they do for football, which is really cool. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. Now.
0: Well, Mario Andretti also has a winery and he was on with me a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him this question. And I have to ask you too, in your opinion, what's the difference between a good wine and a bad wine?
1: I mean, I won't go to bad wine because you know bad wine. If if, it's, if if a wine is bad, you know it's just there's there's no yeah, there's no reason to even drink it. Um, <laughs> you know, if I, a, if I have a bad bottle of wine, I I, I I just I just dump it down the drain. When I find a bad bottle of wine, though, I intentionally pour a glass for my wife because she's got a great palate, um, but she also has been really spoiled because since we started drinking wine, we've we've been serious about it. We drink really good wine, so everyone's once while, hey, you have to try this. So what is it? I'm like, just try it. She, That's awful. I'm like, yeah, it is. So you just have to. You have, to have some. Per, you have to have some perspective on what you know. Bad wine tastes like because we never drink bad wine. Uh, but to me, to what separates you know good wine from from great wine, the number one thing that I would say is balance. Um, you know, when I, in, in the great wines of the world, um, you have everything working in harmony. Which again, it's you know, there's a lot of this that translates to music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you have a band and all you do is play, you know, ripping guitar solos, okay, well, yeah, that's sort of cool for a second, but man, it gets boring after a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, have, if you have a true band that works together in harmony, then you make magic, right? And, and with wine, you, know, you, need, uh, you need structure, you need tannin, you need acid to balance, uh, you know, pretty fruit. Um, that, uh, and and when, you, uh, when you have those wines, Uh, they get more interesting the more time you spend with them rather than just being kind of one note, you know, uh,
0: boring wines. And do you hang at the winery? Are you like in the pouring room hanging out and pouring for people?
1: Yeah, we have a, we have a, uh, the wineries in Walla Walla. And then we have a, a a wine bar tasting room down in Bend, Oregon. And I spend a lot of time at both places. Um, That's the fun part of it. You know, you get to interact with people. It's a very social uh, thing, obviously. And it's a, and then it's different than, you know, going and, you know, having a beer or a whiskey at a bar, you know, that's kind of yeah. a different kind of conversation. You can sit down and have uh, have a glass of wine with somebody and you kind of get to know what they're about. And, and mm-hmm. So that part's really interesting. And then on the wine making side, um, I know just enough to be dangerous. Like if you gave me some great <laughs> grapes, I could make you a perfectly average bottle of wine. Uh, but we've got a great team. They do all the, the hard labor and then make all the, 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 uh, the, thousands of decisions that goes that go into uh, to what we produce but my wife and i get to do the other fun part which is we get to do the blending trials uh oh. so we go sit down and, and we make the ultimate decision what goes in the bottle uh, once everything's done and it's a very unscientific process we just sit down and try a bunch of different wines and pick the one we like the best um and as you would probably imagine my wife gets the final vote
0: <laughs> well th- then you're doing it right that's, that's all that means. And what music are you listening to when you're relaxing at the winery or relaxing with a glass of wine?
1: You know, one thing that's that's been really um, cool about the, this, uh, you know, digital music revolution that we, that we go through is that, uh, you know, I, I use Spotify a lot. And, you know, all of a sudden, I've been able to put together these playlists of a bunch of bands that I've never heard of. And it's been a really cool way to discover you know some uh, some new music, so I've got some playlists that are pretty randomized, if you will. That's great. Uh, but in terms of, in, in terms of artists that I gravitate to, man, um, well, I'm sitting here in Montana, and, and uh, up here it's a lot of like Ryan Adams, and uh, we uh, actually last night went back and revisited. I uh, think I think it's, it's still his most recent album by Beck. That Beck album. I was sitting here listening to it last night. It's one of the albums, one of a, 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 a small handful of albums, in the really, I think, in the past decade, that you put it on and listen to it from beginning to end. Like you don't cherry pick songs from that album. You uh, you listen to it beginning to end. Okay. Um, and so that, that was last night. Um, let's see what else have we been listening to. Um, that's, uh, that's that's kind of newer and
0: more relevant. But all of music is relevant. You know? It, no, it's all, it's all, yeah, it's,
1: yeah, true, true,
0: true. Yeah, I, I had a friend of, of mine say, oh, this, you listen to the Beatles, that's that's before your era. I said, it's the Beatles, it's right for every era. What are you talking about?
1: That's so true. You know, that that uh, that movie that came out recently tied to the Beatles where, uh, I don't know if you saw that, but it was, but it was uh, Yesterday? The premise of the movie was that, yeah, yesterday, yeah. And that, that movie, I mean, you know, the movie itself was, yeah, it's good, whatever, but what that did, though, is it just revealed how deep that library is from the Beatles. Oh my lord! Yeah, I mean it, it is, it, and it's and it's not the it's not you know they they released the, the LP of the just the, their their number one hits, and those are those are very good songs, obviously. But then you go a layer deeper uh, into the Beatles, man, they made so much great music, and and in really a short amount of time. That was one thing that was, was really striking. When I started to dive back into the Beatles, it was it was a short run, yeah, uh, where they made you know music that changed the world.
0: Oh, without a doubt, it's. I think it was nine years in in total. Just an incredible amount of of music and when they stopped touring and just went to the recorded albums and you have stuff like Rubber Soul and Revolver into Sgt. Pepper's and White Album it's it's just ridiculous the the amount of music that was created and how music changed through their their career
1: I wish I could claim that I was I could I I may be super gifted as a musician. I just don't know. I I've, I I've, I've strummed a guitar <laughs> a couple times. I, I just I can't play anything, but I love music. And you know, you talk to musicians really in, in almost any genre and at some point pretty much any good musician you talk to will reference the Beatles. Yes. Uh, it's it's really it's really amazing. Yeah, you know, because I think to you know to a lay person like myself, you listen to like just their their number one hits. It seems like you know pretty simple music, but then you, you talk, talk to musicians and you start to listen to it a little bit more. Man, they really did some innovative things and and that uh, uh, really truly changed music.
0: I know that, but before you go, I have to mention your other project and that's your podcast, Bledsoe's Basement Tapes. Now, I listened to all of your episodes, and this podcast feels to me like hanging out with friends. Having a beverage and just just chilling in the basement. I'm s- fairly certain that that's what you were going for, right? That's
1: exactly what we were going for. And really, right what it is is uh, is uh, it's it's uh, you know Rue Carmichael who's on there with us. We've he's been the, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life for a long time, and he just you know he just has never really been out there, and so we're trying to push him out to the front. My brother always points out when we when we do these podcasts, like, "Hey, if you got Michael Jordan on your on your team, you you give him the ball and get out of the way." But for real, we just kind of try to set him up and let him let him be funny. But that's exactly what it is—us <laughs> sitting around telling stories and uh, and having fun. But unfortunately, we haven't recorded one for quite a while. We you know, the, the, uh, the the quarantine uh, you know limited a lot of what we're able to do. But we got to get back on. We may we may start doing something like like we're doing now, or or even jump on like Zoom and do something like that soon.
0: I hope so, man. It's a, it's really fun project. And I hope that, uh, that it continues.
1: I appreciate it, man. It's been fun. Well,
0: Drew, it was great to talk to you, man. I hope to have you on again, uh, maybe into the football season. We can talk some, uh, uh some, some current football and see where you're at with your fantasy football team.
1: <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, I'll wait. And, uh, I'll, I'll just postpone until I actually win a game uh, during the week. And then we can jump on that way so I can brag about my one win for the
0: season. Week number eight, here we come.
1: <laughs> That's probably pretty close.
0: <laughs> well, have a good one, man. Thanks again for the time.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. You can listen to the music mentioned in this podcast by clicking the Spotify link in the description or by searching The SCORE on Spotify. Please take a moment to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive interviews and playlists, subscribe to The Score Music and Sports Podcast now.